Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And yeah, first in Commentary Podcast history, the first show on which we have not one but two guests, because both Noah Rothman and Christine Rosen are out. Those two guests are known to you. The first is... Uh, Eli Lake, longtime commentary contributor, host of the Reeducation podcast, available on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, with two great Fourth of July episodes for your perusal. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. And Eliana Johnson, editor of the Washington Free Beacon, and herself the co-host of the Ink Stained Wretches podcast, out every Friday with her co-host Chris Starwald. Hi, Eliana. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you, Eliana, as our resident uh, press critic, uh, host of the Insane Wretches podcast. Do you see a sea change taking place in the media coverage of Joe Biden? Because I note really yesterday and today after yesterday's podcast, when I suggested that there was a lot, there were a lot of efforts being made to whistle past the graveyard on the part of pundits and Democrats and people in the media about how, well, November may not be as bad as you think, you know, it could be okay. The Senate's a toss up. You don't know what's going to happen. That kind of the floodgates opened and there's piece after piece in the last 24 hours, uh, detailing democratic disgust and discomfort with and upset at the Biden white house in particular and the way it's handled things. So is there a big change? These guys move in a pack, and I think it's fair to say that they have decided collectively that Biden cannot be the Democratic nominee in 2024, and the coverage of Biden not up to the task has reached fever pitch. I would say the um, with Edward Isaac Dover's uh, piece in CNN uh Headline Democrats wonder whether Biden White House is capable of urgency moment demands. And we were sort of talking off mic. Um, I covered the Trump White House and reading through this piece, which is quite long, it reads like coverage of the Trump White House read where it's one crazy thing after another, one incident of incompetence after another, including, oh, people call and they don't get their calls returned. They don't write thank you notes like, you know, every last little thing uh, is going wrong in there. And then as a compliment to this coverage, we see a Washington Post headline this morning. um, As some Democrats grow impatient with Biden, alternative voices emerge. And what I found so interesting about this is that the alternative voices uh, who may run in 2024 are not Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, because I think the press understands that those are not suitable nominees for the Democrats who could actually win an election. They are Democratic governors, including Gavin Newsom of California and J.B. Pritzker of Illinois. And I will I will just save the commentary on those two for for later. But much to be said about them. Eli, um, Gavin Newsom, uh, I believe, was um, the subject of a recall election just a year ago, which, of course, he he survived and in a landslide, but nonetheless was in fact subjected to a recall. Millions of Californians voted to recall him and end his governorship. And we're now talking about him as though he might be the savior of the entire party in 2024. Is that conceivable? Well, I think that um, 
as, as I think you would acknowledge, John, um, you know, there's an old saw in American politics. Working families love Michelin star restaurants, uh, police abolition, and, uh, you know, gender ideology. And those are, the, that's, the, that's the way to get the sort of big 80% middle. It's insane <laughs> that Gavin Newsom somehow is being touted as a legitimate national candidate when even California liberals don't like him. It's just he lucked out in that his opposition was like, what, Larry Elder, right? Who was kind of nuts. And it gets to something that I think has crippled the Democrats in the kind of Trump and post-Trump era. And I'm going to throw this out there as a theory. I would love to kind of get your thoughts on it, uh, the rest of the panel, which is basically that they thought that the Republican Party was in the process of imploding because they could not believe that after January 6th and after Trump's horrid behavior following the election that he lost, that there would be a Republican Party. They thought that you would have more Liz Cheney's and Mitt Romney's and that they really wouldn't have to compete with a with a, an equal party like this. They could, so I think that they just, you remember in the beginning of Biden's presidency, he even said this. He said the quiet part out loud. He said, I don't know if there'll be a Republican party in 2024. And so I kind of think that they were banking on this. And so they didn't have to actually they thought that the rules of politics and two-party politics in America no longer applied because Trump had dealt such a grievous blow to the Republicans. And I think in that sense, they were wrong. I mean, he might have, but I mean, yeah, he a, may have, yeah. I mean, he might, he might have done, uh, had Biden conducted his presidency in a different way. I mean, I doubt it. I don't really think, and I'm not sure Biden could have conducted his presidency in a different way, but Abe, um, Jim Garrity, our friend at national review has a very good soberings, uh, sum up today in his morning jolt column about how Democrats and Biden have no one to blame, but themselves March of 2021, there was Larry Summers, the sort of the economic grand poobah of the Democratic Party saying, don't go down this road. We're going to see inflationary pressures like we haven't seen in a generation. And every single Democrat in Washington voted for the Biden uh, stimulus, the Corona emergency stimulus, blah, 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 and the infrastructure bill. The only thing they didn't get was the Build Back Better bill. Every single one. Nobody has plausible deniability on any of it. The party owns it. The Republican Party has no possession of it. And here we are with eight and a half percent inflation annually. And uh, and it's unlikely to come down to any significant degree in a way that will be comforting to people by by November. So it's this is all on them. Like had Biden governed from the center and dragged the Democratic Party to the center rather than governing from the left and being dragged himself to the left, we don't know what the counterpositive would be. We don't know what the situation, the force of battle would be uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats now. It's entirely true. And it's also part of what makes the, the press turning on him delicious because the press wanted that. You know, they, they were they, they were in favor of all sorts of uh, um, very liberal policies. And he, they, he has made it very hard for them to stay on his side. I mean, this is, I don't see it so much as, a, as a, an immediate uh, shift overnight. I think it's sort of been building for a while. He's made, he's made the, the sympathetic press look like fools, um, you know, f- feeding them stories that sort of never 
came to fruition. Uh, Mansion was forever on the verge of of being on board with with Build Back Better. Uh, he wasn't particularly nice to. I would them. add to that, you know, Abe. He was, he's uh, inaccessible to them. They want interviews. Comple- that's right. Completely inaccessible, uh, and he would he would explode at them. Um, and you know, finally, they're liberals, and they are panicked about the state of the country. I mean, look, that, that that's that's where all this comes down to, right? Which is that if it were a successful president, a successful presidency, you know, just flows benefits down, rains benefits down, not only upon the country, but upon upon uh, his party, upon people who support him, upon the press that that depends on him, and an unsuccessful presidency, uh, you know, rains down rain and thunder and hail and lightning and frogs and boils and beasts and the slaying of the firstborn, you know, I mean, it's, so, uh, that's, that's, I think where, where we are, I am, I am amused by all kinds of details in these stories about the bad Biden administration. Aliyah, you say it reminds you of the Trump administration. Um, I mean, the real thing that it reminds one of, if you're old enough and none of you is old enough, is the Carter administration. Carter also was very high-handed with the press. Press didn't like him. He didn't like them. Uh, he was very um, imperious and forbidding and uh, young, by the way. Not like, I mean, he was in his 40s when he was president, Carter. Uh, that's why he's still alive today. Um but, you know, young, but very, uh, you know, far from being sort of like a populist good old boy from the South. He was kind of like a, a high-handed, short-tempered, uh, holier-than-thou type. And, um, you know, when the turn started to come against him, which was around the same time, I mean, things really went bad in 79. But, I mean, they were already starting to go bad in 78. And it had the same quality of kind of like everything going wrong bush too, the first bush also like weird things go wrong you know like when you see him say i don't know which way do i turn or i don't know what to do you know carter's attacked by a rabbit bush throws up in tokyo you know by i mean i know it, it it all sounds weird like anything could happen to anybody but once once things start going wrong it's almost like Lear or Macbeth, where nature itself starts spitting out the presidency and saying, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, we're just even ordinary things that you should be able to do, you know, with a minimum of competency are now suddenly out of your reach. You just have no idea how to do anything or get anything done in the in the smallest of ways. Like, Elian, you were pointing out, you know this complaint that nobody sends a thank you note or, you know, the legislative office at the white house doesn't get back to congressmen who called to say, we should really be doing this or that. It's all they're supposed to do. All they're supposed to do is be constituent service in the, in the legislative affairs office of the white house constituent service for house members from their own party. That's the job of the legislative affairs office. They apparently aren't even doing that. The CNN piece also notes that aides are complaining that, you know, Biden is short tempered and loses his temper, loses his cookies at at aides when things go wrong and that that has flowed down in the White House. I mean, in a sense, like the fish rots from the head. All of this is a product of Biden's uh, inability to manage um, if. 
personnel is policy, you know? It really is true. And if he had a firm grasp on the White House, uh, he would have better people in there. There are complaints that nobody's been fired. Nobody was fired over the baby formula stuff. Nobody's been, nobody was fired over Afghanistan. Uh, and that that matters. That sends a message. Um, it, it's part of the problem that the party itself is so divided on what they want or what they even imagine the president can do. So the Dobbs decision was something that prompted a kind of liberal uh, you know, there was there was that line that came out about how the Democratic Party has lied to us for the past, you know, several years about how they were going to do something about protecting this right. And they could have made this a federal law and they have to do much more. And it kind of all reminded me of like they want to, you know, the, the, the line before the election about packing the court or getting rid of the filibuster, which which is oblivious to the fact that there's a very good chance that Republicans are going to take over the Senate and the House in the midterm and they can kind of two can play at that game. But that's one side. And then there's, an, I think, another part of the party, or at least the Biden constituency, that's like, could you please be normal? Stop, you know, celebrating like trans awareness when we've got, you know, a gas price problem. And that those are two things that are really at odds. And he's got to kind of pick a side instead of just trying to straddle the fence between these two impulses in his party. Well, I think it's interesting that he, he went left. Yeah, argue. You know, he he almost sacrifices him. Yeah, but he goes left and still. I agree with Eli, and we're seeing the same thing on Ukraine. Like, there's an there's it's half measures and a lack of uh, decisive leadership on these things, and uh, a constant like charting of the middle path. Um, And Eli, like you mentioned a while. Back, like, did they think the Republican Party was going to exist? I think, like, the Dems too on this, like, they don't know where they are. And, like, on the one, on the one hand, they're elevating. On the, on the one hand, there's the January sixth commission where they're like, there's a threat to democracy and we have to defeat it. On the other hand, they are funding these dem- these candidates right. oh, that are like, know. you know, saying the election was stolen. Like, there really is a lack of like core. I, like views that are ba- bind the party together and I, that flows from Biden. And there was enormous bipartisan support for like changes to the Electoral Count Act, which could have been a win. Like, hey, we had this problem that like the president had this crazy theory and almost stole the election. We fixed it because we're the party that gets things done, but they won't do it because they wanted, they wanted to shove all the other like, you know, very partisan electoral reforms down the throats of and the Republicans couldn't support it. Even Mitt Romney couldn't support it. So to me, it's like, I'm trying to figure out like, well, it maybe it's because the Democrats have two different kind of polls right now. I don't know. I, I, I think that Biden has reason to be angry and upset at the ingratitude of the democratic left. I'm serious. Like that's sure. what I'm saying. He went left. <clears throat> he did with that. He almost lost the infrastructure bill because he decided to tie it to the Build Back Better bill, which was never going to pass. It was clear, you know, in, uh, you know, it, it was clear pretty much two months after they proposed it that there was a reason the bills had been separated. And, you know, he he basically ended up getting an infra- infrastructure bill he could barely claim as his own because he was willing to sacrifice it to this other bill. He's done what they wanted. 
he spent a lot of money, not as much as they wanted, but as much as he was able to spend. And the gratitude, what does he get back from them? Bernie Sanders saying you stink. Elizabeth Warren saying you stink. Cory Bush saying you stink. Like AOC saying she, may, she doesn't them, know if like, she'll support him in 2024. Yeah, I mean, you know, screw them. Like he he made a huge political mistake. He tilted toward the side of the party that would never be grateful for his cooperation with them because they're revolutionaries and nothing is enough for them. But exactly. So this is this is a a sort of a macrocosmic or or sort of a writ large example of what we've been saying for two years. Don't give in to the mob. Once you start giving into the mob, I I totally agree with Abe in that Biden went left and reaped none of the benefits of going left. Like they still hate him and the party is still divided. Whereas if he had gone center, he would have reaped a lot of the political benefits and they would have hated him. So he, he, he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't, but he like, it was a really bad political decision, really major political misjudgment on his part. Are we sure by the way, that some of these, super progressives are going to be in their seats forever. I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, like if I was a political strategist, I would run a candidate in the primary against AOC saying this is somebody who attends like the Met Gala during the lockdowns while everybody else is masked. This is somebody who's just wants to be a celebrity. She doesn't have your interest in mind. How many of you call yourselves Latinx? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, it seems like there might be an opening in Queens and working class Brooklyn. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, theoretically, but I mean, she is now one of the most famous politicians in America. And so, uh, you know, in a weird way, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she kind of transcends her own, her fame oddly transcends any, you know, sort of negative aspects of her that, that you might be able to generate against her. I don't think I don't think that's really the issue. The thing is, Biden could have tacked to the center. He decided not to. He chose not to. And when I say that's the Joe Biden that we know and love, he always screws up. He all his political instincts are terrible. The one time that he had good political instincts was in 2019. He or whoever was convinced to walk, talked him through how they were going to run for office and said, we are going to be to the right of Warren and Sanders, and we are going to eat up 70% of the party as a result, because everybody else's impulse is going to be to try to go at, to, to eat off some of that vote, uh, the progressive, uh, you know, in the early, pri- so you can do well in the early primaries. We're going to position ourselves to their right, and we're going to march in. And that was exactly right. That's exactly how he won. And then he had the inestimable weird benefit of COVID hitting so that he could hide for most of the you know, general election season and not actually be out every day making the kinds of errors, unforced errors that he makes now as president, whenever he goes in public and says, where, am I, where do I go? I, I, I you know, <laughs> tur- turns around and shakes somebody's hand who isn't there. Like he could, he sat in the basement and waited John, until they, the public they was. check that he, he wasn't shaking th- hands with thin air. 
That, that he was wasn't? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They, there was okay. a fact no, check. No, no, I know. I know they the fact check it. I watched wrong. it seven yeah, times. I'm totally kidding. I watched it in slow. I, somebody did it in slow motion. Like, <laughs> um, but I'm just saying. Like, so he he had he had a he had a winning the primary strategy, which was to tack, relatively speaking, to the center. He then wins in a country that is even more center right than his party was center left. And what does he do? He goes left. His political instincts are terrible. Uh, the Afghanistan political instinct, aside from everything else about Afghanistan, was terrible. If you see what happened, now granted, maybe that's because he couldn't see the disaster that was unfolding. You look at the chart of his favorability, unfavorability, and all of that. The lines cross in August of 2021, about two weeks after the pullout, and he has never gotten back. I mean, it's like an X. He is in favorable rating at the top in January of 2021, and he's unfavorable is down, and the lines cross in August, and they keep going down, so that now it looks more and more like an X. The This latest poll, the Monmouth poll, has him at 36%. It looked like he had a bit of a a surge there right after Dobbs that he had had a two or three point surge, either Monmouth is the outlier or that surge is over and is settled. And indeed, you know, the polling on abortion is not going the way that the Democrats would have wanted Abe. Something that the shaking hands with air made me think of here. Um, Do you think that some of this turn against him, some of the sort of coming out with it now, um, has to do with people looking, looking on and thinking there's just no way he's going to be able to run an actual presidential campaign next time. I mean, because he had benefited, <clears throat> excuse me, um, bizarrely from COVID and, and, and being able to stay inside and, and not have to run a regular, insanely rigorous um, and dynamic uh, presidential campaign, um, he, he wasn't affected. Watching him, the way he has conducted himself since taking office, and if if there is not some some additional huge surge in COVID uh, come come twenty twenty four, can he? Is he up to it? Even if there is a huge surge in COVID, I mean, the last time in twenty twenty, Trump was the incumbent, and it's a referendum on the incumbent. So if there's a huge surge in COVID, Biden's the occupant of the White House. Like he cannot be invisible in the way he was last time. There is no question that Biden's acuity and fitness is uh, is or are the central issues for Democrats. I'm sorry, this is not just they don't care that he mishandled inflation. They don't give a sh- they don't give a crap about inflation as it happens, or they don't believe that it matters or something like that is only, I mean, it's weird that they don't, but they don't. I mean, otherwise they would be more panicked about it, not just the results of it. And they wouldn't keep pretending that it wasn't serious. They're terrified of his lack of mental acuity and they should be. And look, I mean, we have history in the 20th century of an 81 year old man uh, taking over the reins of a country, right? Which is how old Biden will be when the election takes place or 82 or something like that. And that was Churchill in his second go round as prime minister in 1954, something like that. And, you know, Churchill was the greatest man of the, one of the greatest men of the 20th century, the most intelligent person ever to serve as chief executive of any country. 
and he was falling asleep. He was falling asleep at cabinet meetings. You know, he couldn't he couldn't stay away. He was too old to be prime minister. It's just that simple. He was too old. He was the most venerated technology has advanced a great deal since then. (laughs) Just saying, I mean, like there's there's stuff you could probably give him to, you know, I mean, this is a hard job. Yes, of course. This is a seven day a week, 18 hour a day job. Like, you know, I mean, there's a reason that he goes to to Delaware every weekend, unless it's that he has his blood, you know, recirculated in the basement or something. Uh, I mean, there's a reason he needs, he can't, it's too much intense stress. And so, you know, you can't get away from it, really. But you can be in more comfortable or more familiar surroundings, particularly if you don't know your, you know, which staircase to go up or down, uh, you know, because you've memorized that over, over, over. I, I mean, I'm making jokes, but I'm not. Look, I mean, we're watching the guy in real time. I mean, who's kidding who here? Who's kidding? It's like when he goes through something and he doesn't have a terrible blunder, you're like, uh, you know, you can't help it even if you don't like it. It's like, oh, thank God. Like, he got through that press conference. He was pretty clear. He spoke pretty clearly. He seemed actually to know what he was talking about. Like, the way we grade him on a curve already, because he's so old. I mean, I know 79 is not that old, but it's, it's, we know plenty of people who at 79 are half, are at half speed from what they were at, at you know, at 72. And he's in very good shape. He's in very good physical shape, although he is capable of simply falling down off a bicycle for no reason, which we also saw. It's not like he was, it was like, it was like an invisible demon pushed him down on the ground. He was just there on the bike and then suddenly he fell off the bike. I mean, but granted, look, he rides a bike and Zyga's into him. That's good. He's it's very impressive. I mean, he's in very good physical condition for a man, his, for anybody and for a man his age, but that doesn't mean that he. No, uh, I mean he's okay. I wouldn't say he's like a physical specimen or anything. He looks he's, pretty. He he's looks pretty fine. Fit. He looks pretty. Seventy nine. Okay. <laughs> he looks very fit. You could bounce a quarter off him. Let's face it. Anyway, what what does it matter? What does it matter? Of course, the mental acuity is the issue, and of course, the other problem is he's going to have to acknowledge to himself that mental acuity is an issue if he's not going to run again in 2024, because I don't honestly see how he is defeated if he runs again. The calamity that would overtake his party uh, if there's a fight when in December and January of 2023, 2024, party, party poobahs are actually obliged to make the open case that the president is no, is, is no longer capable of being president when he has a year to go in his presidency? That's like Armageddon. It's like handing Trump the White House. Just hand him the keys. What are you even bothering to... You know, invoke the 20, if you really feel this way, invoke the 25th Amendment. How can he still be president another minute? Okay, but, I, but it's still, the Trump factor is still there. It's, we've never had like anything like this. Mm-hmm. I just think that if it was Biden, Trump, there's, I, I don't know, I wouldn't count out Biden, even if everybody factored in all of the, uh, the health and, you know, the, the, the frailty of his mind and everything like that. Because Trump is so nuts, and we now have 
you know, overwhelming evidence that he really lost his marbles after he, in, in, you know, in, at the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021. You can't have a senile man as president. People are not going to vote in a, a person who looks like he is senile or has dementia or Alzheimer's. It's, okay, it would be but better what to if have he Trump. was running against a delusional tyrant. That's what I'm saying. Is that if it's I got to go between... with the, I got to go with this is my point, which is that yeah. Biden is going to have to be eased out of that White House. Sure. And there's going to have to be an open primary in the Democratic Party. There hasn't been I do an think open between primary those like two, that. Like, Democratic... yeah. It's a toss up. Yeah. It's a, I'm not saying Biden's definitely going to win, but it's it is. It does make it a harder choice. <laughs> there is no way, you know, that if this becomes the conventional wisdom about Biden, which is that he is unfit to be president. I don't mean unfit in terms of his character, his personality or anything like that, but that he is literally not capable in the 25th Amendment sense of, of holding the powers of the presidency, being the guy with the codes to the nuclear football, you know, having control over the armed forces, all of that, that he is incapable of holding that office and that becomes an issue that people have to talk about in 23 23 2024 the year is going to be about invoking the 25th amendment okay but trump effectively had the 25th amendment invoked as noah has written and said on this podcast when pence had to step in and like get the national guard to come and put down the right of the capitol i mean like there there was a very good 25th amendment argument for trump at the end of his yeah, presidency. Yeah, but he was only going to be president for another 14 days. I'm talking about I president for wanna, another you year. You want to risk it again with that guy? No. I don't, okay, I don't. but let's... <clears throat> okay. So, so, so let's say that um, Biden's cognitive issues and Trump's psychological issues cancel each other out. Then you have to say, well, what did, what did each accomplish? Did, did, did something go right under, under one of them? <clears throat> and yeah, you could say, I didn't like Trump. I didn't like his conduct. I didn't like, but we didn't have 10% was inflation. Yeah. Right. You know, we didn't have 10% inflation. I don't know. I mean, look, I, of all the arguments that will be made over the next two years about how we should be afraid for the future of our democracy and our country, if there, our political system can only serve up to us a senile guy versus a psychotic, and that is what yes. the, that is the choice that we're going to have, then there is going to be an implicit answer to the question of whether or not the American experiment is in critical condition. I mean, because that is not how it should be. We, we should have a country that is strong enough not to have present this kind of Hobson's choice to the to the to the body politic and we can get to that question uh and some of the stuff that eliana was talking about about the other people who are now being floated uh after i tell you about how yes it is time to go to your bookseller virtual or physical and get yourself a copy of david bonson's there's no free lunch 250 economic truths the book that will instruct you if you are not all that particularly versed in the, here, in the history theories and ideas that undergird uh, economics, or if you, even if you are, will provide you with a refresher course in how economic ideas connect to 
uh, the best in political theory, the best in uh, the uh, understanding of human flourishing and freedom and faith. So David runs a uh, an investment advisory firm with over three and a half billion dollars under management. And uh, these people uh, look to him for his wise counsel and get it. And he is now providing it to us in this book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go get it today. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or, you know, your lovely independent bookstore, which would, I think it would be a good thing for them to have to order David's book and have it in and sell it to you so that they know that there's an audience for that sort of thing. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Uh, so we have Gavin Newsom up, uh, suddenly, uh, making ads, you know, making ads, trolling Ron DeSantis in Florida. We have talk about JB Pritzker, the governor um, of Illinois. This may be the most ridiculous act of, um, mentioning of the great mentioner. The great mentioner had five, you know, Courvoisier too many when he decided to start mentioning J.B. Pritzker, who is maybe the least likely person ever to be president of the United States. Um, He combines all of the qualities of rich people that other people don't like uh, with uh, every, you know, uh, with every sort of goonish behavior that rich people like to enter into to make sure that they get their houses the way they want them and their 17 properties with the right tax advantages. And, screwing around in the Republican primary to get the can't to run against the Republican that he wants to run against, which you had also mentioned. Um, but uh, Newsom at least is the governor of the largest state in the country, uh, which, you know, the, the governor of California should sort of be in the conversation way more, <laughs> way more frequently than, than he is in terms of, you know, having a national profile, obviously Schwarzenegger couldn't run for president. Uh, Pete Wilson, kind of screwed up his possible run for president in the nineties. Gray Davis was recalled. Um, uh, but, um, I don't know. Gary Brown uh, had been there before and, and it was already in his, yeah, it was already yeah. in his mid seventies though. Apparently that's no, that's no barrier anymore. 90 is the new 70. So, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think the there's Atlantic a lot of sexism. should do a 90 under 90 <laughs> issue where they just talk about the 90 up and coming <laughs> political figures. You know what? If you don't get into that one, boy, you're, do you stick? Yeah, exactly. Imagine <laughs> that. Like, if you can't be one of the 90 people to watch. Um, but, Eliana, there's a lot of sexism going on here. Oh, my gosh. Where's Gretchen Whitmer? Where is Gretchen Whitmer? <laughs> Where's Gretchen? Eliana, Gretchen Whitmer, governor, the of, FBI a, can governor of a potential anyway. swing state. It's a it's a swing state. Upper upper Midwest, Rust Belt. And what about you didn't even talk about the sexism in uh, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar being like pushed out of the mentions here? Uh, I, 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 uh, ju- I, I think going back to talking about Pritzker, Abe had mentioned, uh, but I think it was before we started recording this Wall Street Journal story um, headline, red states are winning the post-pandemic economy. And 
it relates to the mentions of Pritzker, which are, you know, when he's brought up in these articles, and there are a couple of them, uh, the articles do not mention the three major companies that have fled Illinois for red states, um, most recently Citadel, the hedge fund. But um, and that's just in the last two months. And before Citadel, Caterpillar, the construction uh, company, and Boeing left uh, left the state of Illinois. And um, they don't mention that, but this Wall Street Journal article does. Uh, there's a paragraph. Several major companies have recently announced moves of their headquarters from blue to red states. Hedge fund company Citadel said recently it would move its headquarters from Chicago to Miami and Caterpillar Inc. plans to move from Illinois to Texas. And it notes red states have added 341,000 jobs um, since February 2020, the month before the pandemic began, while blue states were still short 1.3 million jobs as of May. Um, you know, if if the people leading Democratic states don't think that is going to be a problem for them. Um, they have another thing coming. I got another thing for you. How about this? How about the fact that Pritzker's, uh, the governor of Illinois, what is the most important city in Illinois? Chicago. What is going on in Chicago? A murder spree, the likes of which we have almost never seen this in the history why of this country. Citadel cites that and when it says why it's leaving. Yeah. I mean, let, let's face it, like, you can avoid it and avoid talking about it as a blue state reporter until the governor of that state becomes the candidate, becomes a candidate for president. And then the question of what it is that he has done as governor of that state to do something about the crime wave in Chicago comes up repeatedly. But by the way, it's not just his rivals. It's, it's not just uh, major corporations that are leaving blue states for red states. It's people. It's, it's the people who work for those corporations. It's the people who are looking for jobs, um, especially be, because uh, pandemic working conditions are such that it's this whole new faction of, of, of this new population, people who can work from home and therefore live anywhere. They're, they're going to red states to pay, to pay less taxes and to have, to have a better quality of life. This and is a huge problem. Right. And this trolling ad that Gavin Newsom made that sort of put him in this conversation, this kind of weird world of resistance liberals so loving anything that is negatively designed or negatively disposed toward resurgent red state politicians that they love seeing Gavin Newsom say, oh, you can come move. If you live in Florida, you come move to California. It's like. Really? People in Florida didn't know that? Your grounds are that you should come to come to California so you can get an abortion? Like, that's really a selling point? Who do you think that's a selling point for? Do you think Ron DeSantis is shaking in his boots because Gavin Newsom, who has a state that is, I mean, it's not exactly depopulating, but it's, you know, and it, it, it's a state that's in, that spent 20 years losing the luster that it had as the most sort of like desirable place in America to live, notwithstanding earthquakes and stuff like that. Um, really like who is that for except for 12 people on Twitter? Who is that for except for, you know, Mark Shale and Ron Filipowski and, you know, Larry tribe. And I don't know who, I mean, 
it's 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 preposterous. Like make an argument. Make an argument for why I mean to be fair, whatever you think of DeSantis, even if you're a liberal like DeSantis is out there every day going places making arguments about why Florida is better off with him as governor and better than other states, why his policies have, you know, sort of um, created more opportunities for freedom. And our former colleague, Max Boot, has a ridiculous piece today in the Washington Post. This is my favorite thing now. This is this is how scary DeSantis has become. Max has now defaulted to the, uh, at least Trump was stupid. DeSantis is really smart, so he's worse than Trump. This is Max. His entire shift to the left was out of out of out of a dislike of 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 Trump and everything that Trump stood for and represented. And now he's scared of DeSantis. So DeSantis is worse than Trump. He's way worse than Trump. Um, you know, that's who who is that for? But that's 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 only going to be the first of many such arguments. Oh, I mean, no. A, yeah. Well, it's already yeah, started. I mean, like, you know, who is that for? John, the, Eliana, the, the other thing I, that I think is important is you say DeSantis is out there making the argument. Um, I mean, Newsom is out there making the argument. He's he's saying, come to California because you can be free there. Dot, dot, dot. It's to have abortions. DeSantis is making the argument on issues people care about. When you go and poll people, what do they care about? They cared about COVID. DeSantis was out there making the argument. We're keeping things open. We're keeping schools open. He's out there making the arguments about what your kids are learning in schools, and he's making it forcefully. Um, people, regular people like Eli talked about, you know, that middle 80%, like people care about that. And he's making the argument about the economy and inflation. People care about that. Uh, when you go and pull people like abortion, just, you know, yes, some people care about it, but you know, for the vast majority of people, it is just not the number one issue. And it certainly is not an issue over which people, uh, you know, most people are going to uproot their families and move from one state to another. Uh, and so DeSantis is succeeding because he is talking about and legislating um, about issues people care about. And uh, if, if Newsom wants to have success, like start focusing on the crime and disorder problem in your state. And then maybe you will find political success. Counterpoint. I think Gavin Newsom could, could, could maybe do an ad like this. Are you tired of living in a house? <laughs> do you love fentanyl? Do you, are you just tired of not having enough money to pay for things and would like to shoplift? Come to California. <laughs> We've got more fentanyl. Shoplifting is totally legal now, and it's great to be homeless because of the weather. Not only doing fentanyl, I, uh, do you like doing it in open public spaces on the street yeah. corner? Yeah. Do you like doing fentanyl in a park <laughs> like your, you know, like like your grandparents did? Well, you know, come to come to California. <laughs> so we have we have our first polling uh, showing a measurable increase in the number of people for whom abortion is the top issue, and it has gone up according to um, this Monmouth poll from one percent to five percent. Now, Grant. Now, listen. In its own terms, I, I don't mean to be dismissive. Like an issue that gets you know that sort of like intensifies so that five times as many people say that it is the 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 most important issue to them as said it two weeks before should not be dismissed because there's a lot of room for growth you know sinking in whatever 
nonetheless, uh, it's still 5%. And what I hear from people, I hear a lot of people, friends of mine, you know, blue state people who say things like, I'm really now going to have to think about what states my kids can go to college in. Not getting that too. Not I have to move, but like, I don't know that my, how could my kid go to Tulane? You know, that's in Louisiana. You know, that's not that anybody I know is ever going to send their kid to like the university of Alabama, but you know, or the university of Mississippi, but I'm just saying like, there's a lot of that stuff or this Hollywood, we should never make a movie in a state that, you know, that, that, that doesn't allow abortion because, you know, people on Hollywood sets really don't, you know, movie sets don't really have the means to fly back to California to get their abortion along with their fentanyl and their sleeping bag uh, for the streets. I don't, but I mean, yeah, you know, so but, what, yeah. but we'll, we'll see, we'll see who holds to that because those are, those are decisions sort of those are those are propositions that are directly linked to to politics people are moving to red states because of lifestyle because of because of what is happen what what it means for them to live in one state or another and which is by the way the result of politics um but but it's not they're not doing it to make a statement and, okay, and, and, I want to. You you mentioned COVID, and I think we should end. We haven't talked about COVID in a long time, and it's interesting because in the last two weeks, uh, a new variant, this sort of fifth Omicron variant, has sort of taken hold in the United States, and it is biting. Like there are, the caseload is up over a hundred thousand a day, and those are that is not with mass testing. That is with limited testing, which means it's probably vast. There are vastly more cases. And the death toll is up from, you know, in the hundreds to in the high 300s a day. Uh, that's a significant number. That You know, you follow that. How? What is that? That's, you know, 90,000 deaths a year at this pace uh, if, if, if things don't slow down. And yet, what aren't we talking about? Oh. Anybody have it? Why aren't we talking about COVID? I'm interested. I actually, I don't have an answer. I'm not, this is not like a Socratic. Well, John, you gave, here. you, you, you have, you gave the answer in advance ages ago on this podcast. You said that it will cease being a crisis when, when it's being a crisis no longer benefits the the right people. And, and I don't think there is any up, upside in, in any, in anyone um, in power coming out now and, and, and saying, up. Oh, Got to lock down again. Let's get uh, Fauci out there. Let's get uh, Rochelle Walensky talking doom and gloom. Um, I, th- I think those the, there, there's no rewards to be had there. I think I want to be even darker because that's the political. And then there is the personal, which is that I think it's now pretty clear that everybody who is dying from this condition is dying either has massive comorbidities or isn't vaccinated. And so what we now have is we've really crossed a a Rubicon into the world in which people who are dying from this disease no longer seem to elicit the kind of sympathy that the death tolls of this disease at, at previous times might have. And people have sort of gotten the message that if you get vaccinated and double vaccinated or boosted or bo- or all three, that um, you are not only 
extraordinarily unlikely to die from it, you are extraordinarily unlikely to get sick from it. And so what you need to worry about are these very questionable conditions that people are now, I think, making it clear from their behavior they don't really believe in, like long COVID, which we've talked about on this pod, and which is sort of like the new chronic fatigue syndrome or something like that. It is a it is a condition that is not a condition. It is a series of symptoms that have now been attached to COVID as a long-term disease. I'm sure there are people for whom COVID has had deleterious long-term consequences, but the idea that there is a condition called long COVID that you are actually at significant risk of getting if you get COVID, people enough people have gotten COVID, enough people have known everybody who's gotten all that to see that that is not real. Um, that's my only thought here, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I, it is very odd. Like it was the number one conversation in the United States six months ago. It, things were better six months ago than they are now. We were still talking about COVID as though it was the most important subject in the country. With Things are worse now than they were six months ago. But yeah, I think it does. It does suggest uh, a level of, um, of, uh, yeah. The last thing Biden needs, and the last thing the Democrats need, is for the country to turn sour and pessimistic and depressed over COVID. Because, uh, like Eliana said, like if if elections are referendums on the incumbent, the current conditions in the United States are reflections on the governing class of the United States in the summer of 2022. And who is the governing class of the United States? That is Democrats in charge of the house, the Senate and the white house. So Eli Lake, Eliana Johnson, our two guest stars, our first two guest stars, it's sort of like having, you know, John Wayne and, uh, Ronald Reagan on laughing on, in the same week. This is how old I am. I'm now making references to 60 year old shows that, no one has ever watched, you know, 58-year-old shows. Anyway, so uh, Eli, Re-Education Podcast, everybody subscribe. Eliana, Ink State Regis Podcast, everybody subscribe. Eliana, got to read Eliana's Free Beacon. Hilarious stuff there. Hilarious piece by Andrew Stiles this weekend on Hunter Biden's ex-wife's book. Excellent review. Every word is gold. Very funny. Uh, Abe, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, so for uh, Abe and the absent Noah and Christine, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>